Hey guys, as you probably know, Instride is brought to you by Ride IQ. And instead of telling you about Ride IQ, I'm going to read an excerpt from a recent review in the App Store. The headline is Solo Game Changer. It's five stars. It says, not only do each of my rides have more consistency, but the noticeable improvement in both myself and my horses is incredible. I'm in constant awe at the people in this community and the unending support that is given to members from coaches. Yes, you read that correctly. The coaches are very much involved in the day-to-day of the private community that comes along with the app. Whether answering questions, giving feedback, or celebrating wins, there's always someone jumping in when the need arrives. This review continues on, but I know you want to get to today's episode. So if you haven't tried Ride IQ yet, there's a two week totally risk free free trial. We would love to have you give it a go and you get access to everything that Ride IQ offers. Just head to ride-iq.com to sign up and enjoy the episode. On today's episode of In Stride, Sinead talks to five-star event rider Emma Klugman. In 2020, Emma won the three-star long at Kentucky on Bronte Beach, and the pair had a top 10 finish at the Morvan Park four-star long in 2021. Also in 2021, Emma was the highest placed young rider at the five-star in Kentucky aboard Bendigo, a horse she produced herself. Emma is on the Australian High Performance Next Squad, which identifies future riders for the Olympics and World Championships. She's a three-time A Pony Club graduate, and she's one of only two people in the U.S. who have achieved three A certifications. Emma graduated from Duke University in 2020, and she's now in her final year of law school at George Washington University. She teaches clinics around the U.S. and runs a sales and training business out of Snowy River Farm in Clarksburg, Maryland. Today, Emma and Sinead discuss Emma's pursuit of higher education while running a sales and training business and competing at the top levels of the sport. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone. I am really excited to be joined by Emma Klugman. Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for showing up. We were just talking about, fortunately, it's uh, that we have to do this. So it's an excuse not to go outside because it's really cold where you are. And it's really cold actually in Florida right now, too. So a nice way to spend the morning. Can you just honestly, I was (laughs) going through your stacks of like different resumes as far as the many different hats that you wear. And I found myself going, I don't even know where you are right now, what you're doing, if you're in school and riding and all of those things. Can you just say, set the stage for where you are and what you're doing right now? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah. So uh, I am both in school and riding as has been the case for I guess, basically my whole life. I live in Virginia, Northern Virginia. My horses are in Maryland, about an hour north of Washington, D.C., my mom's uh, farm. And so I'm actually here right now. But, and I go to George Washington University of Law, which is in the city. It's, um, It's in Foggy Bottom, like a few blocks from the White House, really. So I'm in my third year of law school, which is great, third and final year. I'm very close to the end. In fact, it would be nice if I could just sort of get the piece of paper right now, but (laughs) one more semester. And uh, so I I ride, I mean, I guess in theory, I'm in school full-time, but I'm also riding basically full-time or around that schedule. And right now we're in 
quieter time of year. Horses are coming back into work slowly and we're trying to not have our toes freeze for the next few months. <laughs> but I'm, I've also, I'm also on a break from school at the moment. I just had my final exams. So I've got a couple of easier weeks and then yeah we we start back up again so I mean you kind of get get into the rhythm of it and for me what's been good in some ways about law school is that the grades are based only on your final exams you don't have you know midterms or quizzes or papers like throughout the semester like you would maybe in college or certainly in high school where you have tests like every week. In law school it's it's all or nothing. You get to the end of the semester and 100% of your grade is is based on the final. So that's very intimidating and uh, you have to do well on that one test, but it, it's also nice in another way because I can get a little bit behind when the horse stuff is really crazy and then I can kind of buckle down at the end of the semester and make sure I um, I do all the reading and remember how to write an essay and take multiple choice. So, so yeah, it's been good, but it'll be also good to be, to be done with school eventually. How does that work? Like, how do you have your, your daily, I mean, I know in the horse business anyway, it's not like days are always different, but how does yeah. that work as far as, cause it's an hour from where you live to your farm. Yeah. So I do, I do ride six days a week. I generally I mean, really around DC, the trick is trying not to get into the rush hour traffic. So I, I do like kind of make my class schedule based on that a little bit, like trying not to drive into town at eight o'clock in the morning, just because it's going to take twice as long. And then, yeah, I just have to be a little bit creative with it. I mean, sometimes I stay up here. And so I'll like finish school, come and ride in late afternoon and ride a bunch of horses and then put them away sleep for six or seven hours and then wake up early the next morning and ride them all again and then leave and then be gone for, I guess, a day and a half and then come back and kind of do that again. So try to maybe not do quite as much driving, but yeah, I mean, it, it can be tricky and um, yeah, I have good help and people that help me hack the horses and stuff when, when things get really busy, but it, uh, yeah, it kind of works and I love it. So it makes it easy to commit to it, but it's also you know, rather exhausting sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I can, I actually can't imagine what, and does, is, or is your family horse? I mean, obviously you said it's your mom's farm. Is, mm -hmm. is family horsey? How did that? Yeah, happen? a little bit. My, my mom did pony club in Australia growing up. So both my parents are Australian and had a horse or two growing up and did some, I don't know really if it was eventing, but it was um, Gymkhana and jumping and that kind of thing. And then didn't do it for quite a while, but we lived in Nairobi, Kenya for a couple of years when I was growing up. And that's actually where we got into doing horses again, or the, us kids got into doing horses, my brother and I. And then, and we did pony club and we did, I guess it was eventing, but it was, I mean, I don't particularly remember doing dressage. So I think we were mostly <laughs> jumping in cross country and I had a great time. It, it's kind of based on British Horse Society kind of, I don't know, people that were there that were kind of trained in that and then uh, were doing that in Kenya. So that's where we, or I got introduced to doing horses and then we moved back to the States and I sort of was demanding that I continue to ride because I liked it so much. And yeah, then we were kind of off from there. So, so not super horsey, I would say, but I've been, yeah, jumped right in. And of course they maybe regret those initial riding lessons that I, that I had that were in Kenya five bucks a pop or whatever. And now it's sort of uh, crazy. A little, a little more. So yeah. what, 
What brought your family to Kenya? My mom worked for the World Bank as an economist and was working in Ethiopia and Sudan at the time. So she would go over there from Kenya, I think reasonably, maybe like once a month or once every two months when we lived there, but it was a little bit kind of safer, I guess, to live in Kenya. But it it was great. We were there for two years. I loved it. We went to an international school and yeah, it was just really good exposure. How old were you? Uh, Seven to 10 or nine or 10. Yeah. Pretty young. Yeah. Yeah, But old enough to appreciate it. Like if you're kind of younger five and down, you don't really um, remember it. That's so interesting. So then you guys moved back to, to Mar- were you in Maryland, like the farm? Uh, we were actually in D.C. I mostly grew up in D.C. And then eventually we started doing horses and we were boarding them and driving all over the place to the boarding farms. And then eventually we, we got this property. Yeah. Wild. So you, I mean, so you're pretty comfortable in the city. Like you have spent a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not really a city girl, though. I mean, like we, we actually lived in New York City for a year when I was growing up as well. And uh, I mean, I'm not a huge fan. I would rather the peace and quiet of, of country, but but I like the city too. I mean, it's kind of nice to have both a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Th- like, let's talk about the higher education part because that I think is the side that's unique to be able to do high performance eventing and be in your third year of law school. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I know that it's like you're an awesome role model to show that it can be done. I mean, it's a pretty incredible feat, uh, even how much you have to to balance it. But it also seems like it brings a certain level of balance. I, I, I don't know you very well, but my impression is that it brings a certain level of balance to you and to how you look at your horse career in this, as opposed to it being so small, small world. Like, I don't know yeah. if that's the right way to say it. Yeah. Can you speak yeah. to it a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, first off, I would say there was never really a question whether I was going to do at least an undergraduate degree. I think my family's very much has valued education and even, you know, my extended family as well. So I, and I liked school so much that like, I don't think I ever thought I don't want to go to college. I was so interested. I mean, I'm just a nerd. Like (laughs) I love school. So, and like ideas and reading and everything. So as long as there's not much math involved, I'm, I'm very happy to do school. And so I think because it was a given, I didn't really think like, oh, I could do the horses or do this. I just sort of thought like, it'll kind of work. And it's funny, before undergrad, I talked to people who said, well, don't bring the horse, you won't have time and things like that, or don't bring them the first year, like get settled in, which I think maybe has a little bit of truth to it. But I was sort of like, no, I'm going to bring the horse. Like, this is what gets me out of bed every morning. And it's like, kind of what makes me feel normal and like happy. And so I had a horse, I think first semester, and then two horses for the rest of the time that I was in undergrad down in North Carolina. And, and that was great. And then law school, the same thing, people were like, there's no way you can keep riding, you should just sell all your horses and quit and whatever. Law school is a full time job. It's crazy. It's so stressful. And my view is like, if it's that stressful, you kind of need the horses (laughs) because otherwise you're going to go nuts without like an outlet. And so same kind of thing. I mean, I did, I think I did Maryland my first semester of law school. So like, yeah, I've just kind of been doing it since uh, all the way through and it's been great. It is, it is stressful. 
there are times where you have to really focus on school and times where you really have to focus on horses. You have to be doing both all the time, but there's, you do have to prioritize a little bit. So if sometimes I don't do my homework when my horses, it's really important that my horses gallop on a certain day. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm not going to not just give myself a second to unwind or sleep a little bit just so that I can like read a hundred more pages of the textbook. Like I sort of have realized how to, this sounds bad, but kind of how to gain the system a little bit so that I can still do well in school, but I'm not necessarily doing maybe as much hours as every, but all the other students who are just law students who are frankly kind of miserable, not all of them, but <laughs> a lot of people who just do school, it's kind of draining. And so it's kind of nice to have something else. And on the other side, when things aren't going well in the horse world, which is <laughs> kind of, it does happen or things are falling apart a bit, or you don't have a good show or whatever. It's really nice to have something to turn to. And frankly, to not be in the barn all day, every day, and to go to the city and walk around and kind of feel like, I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm kind of a, a little bit of a fraud, a different person. <laughs> I'm kind of like a fake in one way or in one world or the other, but, but it's nice. And so, and, and another way that I look at it, I feel like I'm rambling, but is that every horse professional has to spend the majority of their time, most horse professionals have to spend the majority of their time doing something that's not high performance because high performance doesn't pay anything. Like running a horse at a four star doesn't make me any money. It costs me a lot of money, <laughs> but it definitely doesn't make money. So you have to spend a, the majority of your time doing something that is going to create money. And obviously being in school does not pay anything right now, but once I am employed, <laughs> then I'll have a job, which make me have an income. And so the way I kind of look at it is, unless you really love teaching and training horses, and I think I probably love both of those things, but not enough to want to do them all the time. You're going to have to do that. Any, you're going to have to spend a lot of time doing something else anyway to make money. And so why not spend it on something like just outside the industry that could be kind of interesting. So that's kind of the way I like justify the misery of law school, whether it's a good reason, I don't know, but that's kind of my approach. And, and it generally works. Sometimes I really feel like it's too much and the wheels fall off a little bit, but luckily I have great people around me and we, we get through it. And as long as I put aside some time for finals, it usually kind of works out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. That's like, I want to kind of package everything that you just said, because in a, in a kind of way you've, you've figured out just how to maximize your time and that the quality that you put into everything is real quality mm -hmm. but it also i mean to be frank especially these days like we waste a lot of time spinning around getting nothing done <laughs> i mean for whatever reason what you know yeah. you, you spoke to kind of so people like the kind of direct line people at school spending so much time being stress stress like is such exhausting energy. And so it makes yeah. you less efficient. And exactly. like, and if you're just in the, the horse profession, which I am a, a lot of people probably listening are too. Yeah. What made me kind of like make my time more efficient was having kids because I was like, I have yeah. to get things done. And then it yeah. just makes you prioritize like this has to happen. This has to happen. There's like, I can't just lock in the stall and come back. Like right. it's, Right. And you don't have the whole day to do it. Yeah. And it's what's yeah. amazing is how how much you can get done well. 
right and, stay and then amazing the things that just fall away and, mm -hmm. and I mean Tick and I talk about it all the time like what how, how did we spend all day every day <laughs> in the barn you know like um when now yeah. it's like eight to five like eight to four that just has to happen but mm -hmm. it's that and to be honest we're a lot happier because of it and it seems yeah. you've done the same thing it's like well I've got, everybody has the same amount of time like it's the amount of people that say I don't have time it's just the, everybody has the same amount of time they just have different yeah. priorities like where right. you spend your time yeah um, I will say that sometimes I do feel like kind of an efficiency machine crazy person in the sense that like I was talking to my partner about this the other day like it's been really nice over the the winter the slower season whatever to just like take the horses on a trail ride and like most because most times when I'm coming and training I'm feeling like oh my god I have to train like I've got to practice the dressage test I've got to like do this I've got to gallop I've got to do that and like to some extent with the high performance horses you have to you can't just like trail ride them three times a week you're not going to get where you want to go but because I have so little time a lot of times during the season, I can't just like go for a hack, like a long two hour walk through the regional park that we live near and just like walk through the forest and think deep thoughts. Like I just don't really have time for that. And the same thing with school, like sometimes you're, you're reading something and you're like, wow, this is, I want to read everything that, that this legal scholar has written. And that would take me like probably six weeks and <laughs> we're reading every day. So I can't do that. But like, sometimes you, I tend to want to go really deeply into things. And sometimes when you have limited time, you have to kind of like stop and start and kind of just compartmentalize a little bit. So, so there are drawbacks too. And I think it is, it does make a kind of pressurized situation. And I think sometimes I have to manage that and making sure I don't like impose that on the horses because the horses don't know, right. They see me I come here for five hours or whatever, mostly riding. And the rest of the time, they're just like hanging out in their paddocks and like eating and whatever. And so if you come and you're like, oh my God, we have to like prepare for the horse show. And they're like, chill out, <laughs> right? And just like take a second. And it's good. I mean, they help me do that. But I think also sometimes the pressure that I feel and that I put on myself, I impose on them a little bit too much as well. So I'm, I'm kind of working on, you know, finding the balance there. But again, you can't not put any pressure because then you're not going to get where you want to go and, and score how you want to score and do well at the events. So yeah. it's a bit of a balance. Well, I think it's, it's the, like, it's your relationship with pressure. And it's the same thing with the horses that we're trying to do is that it would be naive to think they're not going to have to deal with pressure. Like, right pressure makes things grow, but too much yeah. pressure makes things break. <laughs> so yeah. it's yeah. it's kind of finding that balance and figuring out. Yeah. And and I think that's the thing is that it's a constant, like you're always the reason probably that you've been so successful on both ends is that you're constantly reevaluating. You're constantly like balance is that thing that you're kind of tipping one way or the other <laughs> and moving around that bit, trying to just be aware of it, of it, whatever it is, but kind of keeps you reevaluating. And I was listening to something the other day and um, the guy was just talking about the myth that when you start prioritizing your time, you just say no to the things that you really don't want to do. But he said, actually, that you have to, the hardest part is saying no to the things that you want to do, you know, the things that you really, really want to do, but you just know you can't, like you just are, it's actually impossible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like I used to read a lot and I just like, you know, I really have time to read things that aren't like 
legal textbooks. <laughs> so, and I would love to do that more, but I, I mean, at some point, hopefully I'll get more into it again, but yeah, law school kind of kills your, your reading habit. <laughs> well, it, it was, it's funny too, because like it becomes when you said like the efficiency machine, like it just got me thinking about, we, we get so good at being efficient at stuff, but like mm -hmm. one of the things you can't be efficient at is riding. Like if you're going to do it well, riding your horses, you need to, like you said, like work on being there. Yeah reading just to read like because I, I like to read nonfiction, but I'm like what am I learning what am I going okay this is boring what's the next thing <laughs> fiction book read the murder mystery I'm like no flip it through the page <laughs> I'm like calm down and uh, but finding things that kind of make you just you can't, that you that you don't get the benefit if you rush through it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and yeah. I think we get so good at being efficient yeah and also I think we're as a culture very results driven and so like even in the context of training horses if you're doing something and you don't feel like you are seeing a direct result then and there you're kind of like well why am I doing this why am I practicing this if like it's not making the horse immediately better and I think it's a little bit dangerous to think that because some well a lot of the times it takes like years for it to show up on the other side, right? And you don't necessarily know. And also it's kind of an art. Like it's not a science where you like have an input that you put in and then you just like immediately get the output and it's obvious. Like if it was, we would all just be like winning five stars, right? Like, <laughs> because we would know like exactly the formula to put in to get the horse to do this, to like make it happen. And it's like just so much more complicated. Like all of the horses are so different. And so I just think that like sometimes when you're doing something and you're like, this isn't resulting in what I want, whether it's like a better score or the horse jumping clear more or being faster or whatever, you just like might be missing something because the results may not be immediate, which is really kind of hard when you're results driven, which I think that I, I am a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, it, exactly. And looking at it from the horse's lens, it's like, they're always learning. So in two years, that thing might show up that you don't right. want. <laughs> you know, yeah. you yeah. exactly. <laughs> We're teaching them and exactly, it's like a, it's a complicated thing. So there is never a, a solution. You're never like, I'm done. It's like, did you, that ad like killed me. There was a commercial and it was like, this guy was just clicking, clicking, clicking. And then he was like, you're done with the internet. Like you've surfed it all. <laughs> like there is no solution like there is no end to the uh -huh. there is no like like you said, you're always like adding a little brush taking a stroke away like there's never mm -hmm. to it and it yeah. feels like often we're always moving towards that goal yeah where it's like once you breach it you're just going to set another one right. <laughs> I know and then pick apart the things that you could have done better so it's kind of like that building I guess the goals are a bit of a direction but realizing that there's never an end yeah. That, I don't know if that's even depressing or uplifting. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's a little bit of both. I mean, certainly there are moving goalposts all the time. And it's mm -hmm. hard to just think like, oh, great. Like this horse is here and doing it. And like, that's awesome for what it is, rather than just thinking like, what could be the next thing? So yeah, it's, it's definitely tricky. Yeah. Well, let's get let's move back to to the horses. So you you ride for Australia. So where yes. did where did that, I mean, you said your, your parents are both Australian. So was that always going to be the thing? So 
kind of stumbled into it in the sense that I I was over here on my parents' work visas initially, and then I got a green card on the green card for, I don't know, nine or 10 years. And then two years ago, I became an American citizen. So now I'm a dual citizen. It takes a bloody long time to get citizenship in this country. Like I've literally lived here almost my whole life, then I just became a citizen. So really, it was just that when I was 15 or whenever I did my first two-star event, I was Australian. I wasn't American yet, so I had to be Australian. And so I signed up for the FBI or whatever as an Australian. And then because I went up the levels and started doing things, the Australian Federation sort of said like, oh, we'd like to work with you. And they have different levels of squads. And so they put me on their, one of their, it's called the next squad, maybe four years ago, I think was the first time I was on it. And they provide support. And I mean, a lot of it was during COVID initially, so it was virtual, but we did lectures and sports psychology and lots of different stuff. And so because I've been involved with them, I've sort of thought to, you know, just continue. I, I really enjoyed the program. Um, and in a weird way, like when you haven't been a citizen of this country for very long, you don't, I, I wouldn't say I feel like super American. I don't feel super Australian either <laughs> because I haven't, I only lived there like before the age of one, but, but I've been involved in their program and, and really liked it and they've supported me a lot. So I feel committed to to the Australians at this point. So, so yeah, no, it's been good. I mean, it is a little bit hard to ride for a country that is so far away and you don't, I don't really know that many Australian riders besides the ones that are based here, but that's the case for our riders anyway, because so many of them are in Europe and England and Australia and America, like we're all over the place. And so the Federation is kind of used to helping high performance riders like all over the place. So yeah, it's been, it's been enjoyable so far. No, that makes sense. What, well, I actually, I saw something else. Can you, can you talk about like women in sport? Because from a, cause you were, a, it's a, a Baldwin scholar. I saw something on that. Can yeah. You, yeah. Impressive and interesting. So can you, <laughs> can you talk about that a little bit and how that works into everything? Cause I thought that was really cool. Yeah, scouring the internet. So the Baldwin, it's, it's awesome. The Baldwin Scholarship Program selects 18 first-year women at Duke every year to be part of the program. And so you interview in your first semester, and then you are selected, I think, sort of over winter break, and then you start the program second semester. And it's basically, so 18 women per year. And so I think it started in 2010. And so there's been a kind of growing community of Baldwins and there's a cohort each year and we all live together in a women's dorm from second year through fourth year and we do some classes together and it's sort of like a leadership program we uh, there was a little bit of money that we could use like for internships and things like that but it was kind of like a women's empowerment program and sort of an acknowledgement of the fact that like there are only two women in your engineering class at Duke and all the guys help each other with all of the problem sets and you're kind of over there and you don't have any women professors <laughs> and it can be kind of tough. That wasn't necessarily my experience because I wasn't in that field, but just the sense that like women haven't actually been in higher education for all that long. Women haven't been in law school for all that long. Like we only had the first 
female Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who who died a couple of weeks ago, a few decades ago. So it just kind of reminds you that it's relatively recent that we've had <laughs> these opportunities and these rights. And it was a, an amazing program. And what's cool about it is that I kind of thought like, oh, I'd graduate and then it would kind of be over. But we actually stay in touch a lot and we we send each other all updates. So every couple of months, a different year, a different class cohort sends updates. And like, I don't know the people who were at Duke in 2011, right? Like I obviously haven't met them or anything, but they all provide these like amazing and really kind of touching updates about their lives and what they're going through. Some of them are having kids, some of them are getting married, others are like caring for their elderly parents, like all sorts of stuff. Some like pretty harrowing things. And it's all the the kind of agreement is that everything lessons can leave, but but details stay within the group. So it's all confidential. So people are very open. And it's amazing. And sometimes like we'll do Zoom calls about like certain topics and stuff. So it's just a really cool support group. And for example, a lot of them have become lawyers. And so it's been great to be able to like talk to a couple of them about what they went into, what the challenges were, all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it's been great. And so that's kind of on the education side. On the horse side, what's remarkable about horse sports in eventing, but, you know, I was thinking about this more even in show jumping because we were watching the, uh, the Rolex top 10 final in Geneva. They were all men, I think. Maybe there was one woman, but I think they were all men in the top 10 final. But what's remarkable about horse sports is there's so many girls that ride. And then you get to the top, top level. And it's kind of about 50-50, I'd say, in eventing. And it's certainly 70-30 or something in show jumping. I'm not sure about dressage. But there's certainly something happening. There's a bit of a gender, I'm not going to say a gender gap, but there's a something happens because there's not that many boys who ride, but the ones who kind of trickle up and get to the top level and have a lot of support seem to have some more ability to stay or have have kids, but still can do what they're doing. And I think it's a, it can be trickier. So I think just kind of putting that in perspective, and there is a little bit of a thing in, event, in eventing of like, that horse is a man's horse or something, which I just think is bullshit. Come on, I can do as many push-ups as you. Like, it's. I mean, sure. To some, some horses are really strong, but I think like most horses, if they're trained, don't have to be that strong. And I don't know. I just think that's. I think that's actually very sexist um, to say that. And so, um, certainly, some people. Everybody has a different style, and some people ride differently. But to say a horse is a man's horse, I mean, maybe it's it's like a size thing. So maybe not like a tiny rider, but you have like small men too. Anyway, so that's just a, an aside. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, I mean, let's, let's spend a little time there because it. I've thought about this so much and it's so interesting because there is just like this moment where your kid or your pony club or your whatever, and it's all the girls, all the girls are going to the barn. It's this, you know, that's the whole thing. And then the team situations I have been in have been mostly men, whether, and it's coaching, <laughs> support coaching right. I, the whole way through, like it, everybody that I even worked for. And then I look at it anyway, there's a lot of different things, a lot of different layers to this one, but sure. then I look at it and I'm like, how much did I contribute as well? Because when I, in a weird way, just a cultural way, because 
when I was growing up, like every rider I went to go work for was a man. Like I didn't, mm -hmm. for some reason, I did not pursue going to work. I, I ultimately, I ended up with David and Karen, but I worked, I really worked for David, yeah. uh, I'm William and Stuart Black. Like yeah. these are all that I ended up with. And I look now at a lot of the young riders that base themselves just with this man. And I'm like, you're not like that. You're not going to get the best thing yeah. out of that. Maybe for you, like some of the people that are, some people will, but mm -hmm. there's, when you hear about people going to ride with somebody, it's normally a man. You'd be unique to that. Cause uh, well, you went to Packy and then mm -hmm. Maryland, right. Mm -hmm. um, but there's not as much of that, which is, I mean, I guess it's changing. Yeah. A bit now. There are some professional women now that are now known more for their teaching. Like yeah. Karen is in there and Sharon White and, yeah. It would be, I don't know. I don't really understand how that happens. And also in the coaching roles as well. And I don't know if it comes down to, you could speak to this from from a higher education point. Like, is is it purely cultural? Are we kind of shyer about stepping into those roles? Like, what are we pushed out? Is there not the opportunity? Is it not kind of like a leg up and we have to work a little bit harder to do that? I mean, what yeah. is it that you think? I started having this conversation with Prue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she had a lot of cool insights on it too. And she keeps up and sends kind of women. And you can see it across most sports now. There are women that are getting more into coaching roles and getting more confident yeah. there. It's kind of, it's just weird. I think the WNBA has the same problem. Most women's basketball coaches are men. College basketball as well. No, it's interesting. I'd never really thought about that from the coaching point of view or basing with somebody. But there's something quite powerful about having a female mentor. And I couldn't tell you exactly what it is. And it's not like in the Baldwin Scholars Group, we just like sat around all day and talked about like sexism. Like we talked about lots of things, right? It wasn't all just like women are so oppressed. Like it was about how my colleague or classmate was going to like build a rocket or like solve some policy problem or they were working on an economics thing, like so many different things. So it's not, I don't want to like say that, in, in the horse world too, that you're going to be training with someone. And like, I mean, it's not like Marilyn and I talked a lot about like women's mm -mm. Like, issues or anything, right? It's more just like having a mentor who is more like you, I think is what it is. And for riding, Packy used to tell me this a lot. You want to ride with someone who's a little bit similar to you in style and body type. So it may not be that fruitful for you to work with someone who's like extremely tall and has super long legs and is male, although maybe the gender doesn't matter. And so he would encourage me to like watch videos or go and watch people who were like about my height and had kind of a similar style and sort of body type to me who weren't like Roz Cantor is like a completely different shape than me and is amazing, obviously, but maybe the way she rides necessary wouldn't necessarily work for me and maybe William Fox but also on the other end it wouldn't necessarily work so from an athletic point of view I think that is important because we are the horse is the main athlete but we are also athletes and so how we use our bodies basically is important but yeah I mean I think it would be great if in some ways like women riders had just like kind of more street cred right like we're out there and we're doing it and we're, a lot of us are winning and everything like that, but it seems like in some ways there's just like a little bit of a, a damper or, or a discount or something like that, just like in the background kind of all the time for whatever reason. Um, it's just like a little bit of a tax. And um, I don't think 
I don't think that there's anything explicit that I can necessarily point to. But as you were saying, there are these kind of patterns and you're kind of like, what is it exactly? And what's, what's, is it cultural? And part of overall trends are individual choices. And so your choice, like each person's choice to work with a certain person or to support a a certain person, like, you know, talking about sponsorship and support, like I am an openly gay woman and I have wonderful, mostly women owners who have like individually chosen to support me instead of a big name male rider. And so those things kind of add up and they're important. And I think they send important messages to like other people who may not necessarily fit the mainstream model or traditional model of, you know, what a successful rider necessarily is. Yeah. That's super interesting. I, I was I was also just thinking when you're saying that, I wonder too if there's like a if I think about the top male riders, I kind of in my mind feel like I know like I know a bit about them, like their style, their uniqueness, that type of thing. And then, and sometimes when you think, and it's probably not the, t- it's probably the second tier or something like that. But when you think about, it's easy to blend all the women together in a weird way. You know, you're like, oh, it's, they just, they're, they're a woman rider. They're, <laughs> it's going to be emotional and, but light and soft and sweet. And I can really, like that guy can really, yeah. ride the horse. Yeah. Horse strong because I do think, and it, it's more discussion, it's not blame anywhere, but a lot of of women are the ones saying it's a male ride. It's, it's I know, I know for sure. It's a man's horse. I'm like, no, it just needs to be trained. (laughs) Uh, And if you want to ride it, yeah, maybe. And, and I'm obviously my husband is a horse trainer. So we have these discussions often. And what we find is that there's so many times horses come here for him and Mm -hmm. they end up with me and there are horses that come here for me and they end up with him. And it's not because we're male or female. It's because Mm -hmm. we thank God have a different, like we, we are drawn to different things that we appreciate in horses and we're better at different things. And it's got nothing to do with strength. So it's, it's really been interesting kind of having that, just kind of seeing how that happens because a lot of times we'll get ones here and we end up switching and everybody, by the time people are here and in the program, they're totally happy with the switch. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's, most of the business comes through the door for tick. <laughs> and he would kill me for saying that. He's like, I'm a good rider. I'm like, I know that, but you also have this little extra credit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, he also so has a, it's very, it's very known his angle for what he, for sure. what he is doing. So sure. I don't know. It's just, it's a super interesting. Yeah. It's a super interesting thing. And, you know, and, and I've asked people before, like I, I've asked a lot of women that have come on this show. I'm like, you know, would you consider like Kim Severson, for example? I'm like, would you consider being a team coach? Like, why don't you step up there and do this? You know, why the last time that we were interviewing all the American coaches, why didn't we have more females saying like, put me in? And where is our, maybe it's something that we don't want to do or something we haven't explored. Like I've thought, I've thought through that, like not at this time in my life, but I thought, would I want to be, I really like teaching, but then my first thing is like, not, not that drama (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You end up down the road, but then maybe that's not true. Maybe it's just that it's a little bit intimidating because you feel like it's, um, it's a man's job. I I don't know. It's, uh, but what makes something a man's job? I mean, really like you can read all the, uh, gender discrimination case law and it's just like all a fallacy like oh well no women would sign up for the job of work in a this type of factory and that was like the legal argument and then 
clearly there's a lawsuit about it and the woman is trying to get this job. So clearly at least one woman wants to do it, right? So it's just sort of like, and, and I don't know that this is the case for like a team coach type of thing, but it's a it's an age old argument to say that like a woman isn't suited for that kind of job. And it's like most, I mean, so many jobs now in the modern world are not based on brute strength or anything like that, right? They're not physical, they're intellectual. And so there's no difference. I mean, there's really no reason except for there aren't that many role models. And so you can't look and see like who else has done this that makes me think that I could do it. And maybe sort of a cultural thing that you don't put yourself out there. But I I don't think that there's any biological difference. <laughs> I think that's pretty well sorted in the literature. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's a fact. <laughs> well, and I think I like what you said too about kind of that the the whole point of the kind of the Baldwin scholar and the group of you guys is more the collective genius. It's just mm-hmm. everybody elevating everybody and and that it's just kind of providing space where you see incredible women doing incredible things, not not man bashing. It's yeah. just not at uh, all. Yeah. Yeah, it's just that. And I and that is probably something in a weird way too, I think, and it's probably across a, a multitude of sport and business and whatnot, is that when when there's only, when you're kind of living in a place of feeling like there's not enough, you end up kind of, instead of using the whole room to grow, you're kind of fighting and keeping, you know, and you get a little bit that way. And, and in our own way, maybe we get in our own way because of that kind of scarcity mindset, as opposed yeah. to like what I've found in even just this podcast or the um, masterclass that we did is that, you know, you've got three or four or the mastermind, three or four or five people that are professionals that are literally doing the same thing together. You leave feeling fuller, better, like you're in your community, like Mm -hmm. it does lift you up. So I think maybe figuring out that side of it, I don't know. It's just, it's a really interesting. I mean, the thing about the sport too, is it's so isolating and individual, like really we all spend most of our time alone training and riding and stuff, obviously some like coaching and things like that, but there's not like, like a team sport really like soccer or basketball or something like that. Like you have the team. So there's like this sort of like collective structure that is keeping everybody together. And on days when you're not doing so great, you still have that where like, riding for the most part it's just you (laughs) and you have a team around you and but like I I think that there could be an interesting model of two or three or four professionals the problem is that you end up also having businesses so then maybe there's like some friction there but of sort of like working together and Packy used to Packy McGon who who taught me for many years and actually lived um, about a 10 minute hack from here so was an amazing mentor to me he died about four years ago now, used to tell me these stories about the the USCT where he rode for, I think, a year or two years with Jack Legoff and this like completely different model than what we have now of, you know, they had a stable of horses that were owned by the team. They all had their jobs. And it was like, it was like a team training, like atmosphere. And it wasn't just for like a week of camp. It was like, that was their job. They lived there. They, it was like kind of military style in, in what I remember him telling me. And he had all of these crazy sayings from Jack, but he, he looked upon it really fondly, I think because it was like a structured and like collective 
atmosphere and you were all going toward a common goal, which is really a powerful thing where the model that has evolved and that's in our sport, I think mostly for business reasons, is very individualized, which can be can be hard. And like, what are we missing out on? Yeah, that sense of community. I think that's a little bit um, like in in Germany, like Warrendorf, like a lot of their professionals can get, which is a really like really neat thing. You can get X amount of boxes like the German team provides. Yeah. They, you know, Julia Kuzowski is based there and she helps the, the young people that come in and in that model, especially for like your 18 to 20 plus year olds that don't quite have the the um, experience to go and buy their own farm and do their own thing and set up there. But they yeah. can go and they have free amount of stalls to work out of. And there's coaching there available, mm-hmm. whoever you want it to be. There's three or four different coaches and you're just, yeah. you know, and you've got six or seven other professionals or up and coming professionals, which again, it just produces obviously very good results and creates that sense of accountability and community. And you're just always in the presence of growth. And you can bounce ideas off each other and help each other and that kind of thing, even if it's just little things. No, I think that's, that's super, that's super useful. And it's kind of one of the, one of the things I miss about, I, I was a rider for Marilyn Little for five summers, I think, like in between school. And then I spent about six months with her in Florida one year. And I was sort of the main rider and worked with her. And we jumped a lot of horses together and we did lots of things. But it's just like having a kind of fellow like person that's studying how these horses jump and studying like day in and day out, just kind of like the development of of these horses is it's invaluable. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, no. I totally agree. And it's like you said, the more you get into the business side of it, the more it takes you away. You can't, you can't keep doing, yeah, sharing that space because you can't live. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting too, because I think that that connection piece is so important for a, a like genuine happiness, like not being so alone all the time, like having that point of connection but now the way that our goal-driven success like you're always on the clock we're always working there's not downtime and everybody's schedule is so different so like I find it very hard to even it's not like you can just schedule go have a coffee with somebody on their day off like when is the day off like when is anybody's day off and if you have a day off you're so busy doing human things like Mm -hmm. Mm (laughs) laundry But it was like wild even trying to get the other three um, people that were on the mastermind i just want it once a month it took us a year really? <laughs> four sessions wow. yeah over and just once a month and the amount of and it, <laughs> everybody wanted to do it it yeah, just yeah. scheduling was like bananas and so i i was talking to tick the other day because like the coleman's are right down the road from us and they've got kids similar age we go to the same gym like and we've been trying to have a coffee for like three months. <laughs> and uh, it's just, it's hard. It's like really yeah. hard to have that type of um, engagement. And it's, it's so important, but figuring out a way to do that, that isn't so hard that it's just yeah. a normal something. And, you know, what, when you, I think it's, it, that's one of the things I enjoy or enjoyed so much when you, when you are in the position where you get to be on in at least some training sessions and stuff like that. Cause there's these points of connection yeah. where you get to go and spend a few days with people that are just doing cool things. Whereas yeah. a lot of times now, like if you go and get a lesson, you're like in and out because you've got 15 things to do on either side. And I'm sure that is like 
times 10 for you because you're going to sit in the car for an hour <laughs> switch yeah. and it just feels like we're we're like you said like what are we missing out on on not having that environment it's really I mean, again, it's like one of those things, there's like no solution. It's yeah, just... yeah, there isn't. But I think there, I think it's probably in some ways most important early on. And it's why like I tell when people are saying like, or like people in high school or, or early in college, like how do I get good? And like, who should I, what should I be doing? Should I be competing or whatever? I'm like, you should go and be a working student. I was a working student for packy for five or six years then I mean I'm saying like on the weekends in the summers like around school obviously and then for Maryland for five summers plus another six months and I for both of them made clear that I really wanted to become a good rider and I really wanted to ride as many horses as I could I still did all the other things but I remember Maryland this is kind of a funny story so I can't remember it was after one Kentucky and I had Packy had introduced me to her and I was like scared shitless. And then to my terror, my mother emailed her and said, my daughter would really like to work with you. And then she called me like the next day and said, do you want to come work for me? And I said, yes, of course. And she said, so do you want to like work? Like, do you want to be a groom or would you like to be a rider? And I said, I would like to be a rider. And so I think it's so important. And it was really formative for me to ride so many horses and to to really focus on that and to really develop a style and to really understand a training system. And obviously all of the horse management and all of that stuff too, but just to be able to like be fully immersed in it was so important. I mean, we've talked about it before. I probably jumped 10,000 jumps. We had so many horses in the barn that were mostly jumpers and, and selling horses and things like that. But I would jump like eight or nine horses a day sometimes and just be going through the sets. And like, it sounds kind of crazy, but just like the repetition and the learning. And I, and I can like remember distinctly moments where things clicked for me like moments where I understood why you get a horse deep to a fence to make its shape better. Like she'd been telling me that for like two years. And I was like, wow, I really felt the horse do it. And just like sitting on so many different horses and also riding good horses. Like I learned from being in at Rayland in that, in that barn, what a good horse was. And I learned what a quality horse felt like. And then I, then I started buying young horses. I was riding Bendigo still my my saddlebred wonder and and he was wonderful but he was all heart and 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 no talent really and because I rode Scandalous and Demeter and all of those top horses I knew what it was supposed to feel like and so then I could go and try horses and evaluate them and then I got Bronte Beach as a five-year-old and Redfern as a six-year-old and like and then I was able to sort of understand what the quality was. So I think it's, anyway, I don't know where I started with this, but I think it's really important for when, if you want to be really good and get really good to figure out, to work for someone and really work for them and really try to, if you can like ride. And I've, and I've had people come and, and sort of start for a while and then sort of drop off. <laughs> and like, I give them opportunities. They can ride the good horses and like pack them and trot them and, um, even jump them a little if they get good enough at it. Like Marilyn gave me amazing opportunities to show her horses and jump her horses. And, but it was because I was like insanely committed to it and just 
worked and worked and worked, but it was because I felt like I was getting somewhere with it. That was really important. Yeah. I think you hit on so many good things in that. And it's funny. It's like, I went back to being a working student when I was 27. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was so sick of the business side of it. And, yeah. um, and I, I didn't have, I didn't have a, a ton of good horses in the barn and I was just kind of, yeah, just going through the grind. And then when I went to Williams, you know, for a year and a half or two years, it was so awesome because we yeah. had 20 horses going preliminary above three horses qualified for uh, the Olympics. He didn't even know who he was going to take. And he was yeah. so bad, like so awesome. I mean, I got to ride so much and it was crazy because he was wonderful too, in the sense that he said, it's really hard to find somebody that a, it really wants to do it, wants to ride a lot, doesn't mind doing the work. And because you're either in two places, you're either super green, super yeah. green, they don't want to put you on the horses because you can't post or, yeah. or you want to start a business and you want to yeah. go and you do all this stuff. So it's like yeah. they finding like these guys finding good riders to stay at home and not go to badminton, but ride the five horses that are going to the next three days. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was so awesome. And I love what you said about knowing what a good horse is. Like mm-hmm. that's so huge. And if if you and you can only really experience that unless you have a lot of financial backing by going to somebody that has the owners and has the horses, and you're like, oh, and just yeah. because there isn't I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day because there's a bit of a ego thing around riding tricky horses or whatever. But just because they're quality doesn't mean that they're not complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, like you and I, I, I literally was saying this to, to a girl that's that's off and on worked for us for a little bit. I said it's crazy how much better you get riding quality horses. You still learn the same amount because they still are all individuals and they have yeah. their things, and you're trying yeah. to figure it out. But when they're athletically able to jump and able to move, it just yeah. makes your feel and timing and understanding so much better. Like mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. nuts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's really interesting that you said that. Yeah, and you really, I mean, you can only really be as good as the horse you're sat on. I mean, you can attempt to go beyond that, but it may not work. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It catches up at, at yeah. some point. Like, yeah. And when you think about it, like, I always want to be riding something that's athletic enough to at least go the level above what it's doing. And right. if you think about that, even at the five-star level, yeah, you want to be on a six-star horse. Like, right. You don't want to be on a five-star horse. Yeah, so when there's inches of mud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the you know the five-star levels. I mean, you know, like they're freaks uh, to yeah. do it well. To do right. it, to do it well. But it's uh, I, we've like been all over the shop with. <laughs> 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 so speaking to that, what what is going on with your horses right now? What are you? What are your your spring plans? Your spring goals? Yeah, so I feel I feel really really lucky. I have probably the best horses in the in the stable that I have ever had or at least the the numbers which is which is awesome. So we're still figuring out exactly what we're going to do. There is uh, I I have been wanting to and hoping to be able to compete overseas for a couple of years and there's some through my federation, there's a possibility that I, that can be more feasible. So that's kind of in the back drop a little bit, but it, it depends on a few factors. So I'm kind of like thinking about if that could happen, it would probably be spring, summer before I start working full time in the fall. And then what that would mean. And like, obviously can't take all the horses. So 
kind of balancing that sort of thing out. But with that sort of uh, footnote, the other horses, I have two four-star horses. One of them, Bronte Beach, has done several four-star longs, so I'm hoping to do a five-star with her. She'll be 12 next year, 11 or 12 next year. Redfern, I'm hoping to do a four-star long. She did a couple of four-star shorts this year and then have a couple of three-star geldings and have some young ones. So it's a, I only have a three-horse trailer. Um, so I'll have to figure out who to take where and that kind of thing. But um, but yeah, we're excited. And I think there is something nice about just having, it's hard to balance because each horse needs so much time and fitness and everything. So it's really important to like really individualize their schedules and spend as much time and effort on each individual one. But it's also really nice to have more than one because you get more practice. I can jump lots of big jumps and I don't have to jump them all on Bronte to prepare myself for Kentucky by having these other horses. So, so yeah, I mean, my sort of policy or goal, I guess, is that every horse that comes in the barn can become a five-star horse. And so we've got some young ones that we're kind of seeing if they're up to snuff for that. (laughs) And with the older ones, obviously developing them and seeing what they can do and what sort of things they can, they can aim for. But we, we start a little bit later than some people because we're up here, but we do have pretty good access to hacking and we have really good kind of like stone dust, like gravelly type roads around here. So we do a lot of road work at the beginning of the year or kind of this time of year and flat work and kind of getting going. And then before you know it, the season's upon you. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited and I'm hoping that I can be like, you know, make really good decisions for all of the horses and figure out the plans and hopefully, yeah, get some good results and, and opportunities. So it can be done. You don't have to go south. so relieved (laughs) yeah exactly Um, what to use it as an excuse anymore that you can't do something because you can't go south I know I know no my my girlfriend says like there's no such thing as what is it what is the saying that she says it's really funny and it annoys me a lot but basically she says you're just not well dressed enough you just need more layers (laughs) all the time he's Canadian he said the weather is not too cold you just don't jacket yes exactly. <laughs> like, well yeah. I don't want to wear a jacket <laughs> it is true and the horses wear lots of rugs but they're fine and I mean they're horses like they don't need to be in 60 degree weather they're they're absolutely fine they sometimes they're just a bit fresh so um <laughs> it's exciting but yeah. Yeah. head out onto the roads without shoes on and see <laughs> that'll help that yeah all right I would like to let's move on to these questions sure absolutely yeah? cool all right <laughs> What is the biggest lesson a horse has taught you about yourself? Yeah, so I was thinking about this one because horses have taught me so many lessons over time. But I think probably the biggest lesson is self-belief. I think a lot of people do, and maybe even horses do, have a bit of imposter syndrome. Can I do this? Am I good enough? Should I be at this competition? And it, it's it's hard to be confident in your own ability, especially if something isn't going that well. <laughs> and I think, and when I say horses have taught me this lesson, I would say mostly my, my first five-star horse, Bendigo, taught me this because he literally is a thoroughbred slash saddlebred horse. He started eventing when he was 12 
I started, I got him as a 10 year old or 11 or something and started eventing to pony club, whatever. And he became a five-star horse and is the most neurotic creature you could ever meet. But something about him, he had a lot of self-belief and he I think what, what was really cool about, or is cool about our relationship, I mean, I, I ride him occasionally, but he's just kind of semi-retired now, is because he started to believe in himself, I kind of realized that he was believing in me too, and that that must have meant that I could do it, if that makes sense. Because like, Packy told me numerous times that the horse was, it was never going to do five star, it was never going to do four star, whatever. And unfortunately, he died before the horse went clear at Kentucky. But it wasn't, there was no indication that the horse had the ability to do the sport properly at a high level. And so it's just kind of amazing what you can do if you believe in yourself. And I think it's hard because I think sometimes I teach people in clinics and stuff who almost have a little bit too much of that about their horse. You know what I mean? Like the horse is like really three-legged and a draft cross, it's not going to do Kentucky. <laughs> Sorry, it sounds kind of bad. So like, you don't want to be delusional, but also if you're kind of ticking along and doing the next level and, and, you know, I'm not saying it was all rosy. Like I crashed him, I fell off of him, I got eliminated. Like he was a very generous soul. But if you're kind of, you just kind of keep going, lay the foundation, you know, get, get them going, all that kind of stuff. Like they can they can start to believe in it and like incrementally get more confident and be able to do it. It was a horse that each time, basically prelim and above, each time he moved up a level, like had issues, like got scared or I, I mean, it was also me. Like I couldn't jump right-handed corners for like a whole year um, on that horse. And like, so had a lot of like steps back, but then would kind of like slowly find his way and then was really confident. And then we would do that for a while and then sort of try the next thing. And then it'd be like, oh no, I don't think I can do this. And part of it was like a scope issue, right? Like the horse didn't really find his scope for a while at the level and then he found it and then he was amazing. So anyway, I just think they teach you self-belief in an amazing way. And it's important to remember it because sometimes you don't really believe in it or in yourself and Sometimes you're kind of showing up and like, oh my God, like for me too, I'm like, these people have been riding like eight or nine hours a day for the past like two months, like to prepare for this. And I've been like studying, <laughs> you know, like how am I, like, how am I going to like compete against them? Like, am I fit enough? Am I like practice enough? Is my eye good enough? Like, do I, uh, do I have the right strategy? Like, is, are all the, are, are all the things done? And you obviously have to be diligent and make sure it's all ready, not just go to the show on a whim. But but then you're like, yeah, I can do it. I'm here. They're, you know, we're we're ready, and it goes a long way. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, it's it's such a powerful thing, especially when we're when you're working with animals that their their understanding of reading our mind and energy is way above and beyond. Like we're restricted, unfortunately, with our horses because we're so good at using our words. Whereas, like that showing up, like you said, at the horse show, you're kind of thinking like, what does it serve me to have all of those doubts? You know, like you, you almost, yeah. should, you, you know, it's help. It's healthy to ask the question and then be like, all right, not now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like it's, it's gotta be a, an energy that's actually, you're going to do it anyway, right? You're going to do yeah. the show anyway. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah exactly well kind of show up you uh, you've driven all the way there you've packed your horse is clean yeah, <laughs> yeah. like how there. do you want to do how do you want to yeah. do that there's a there's i feel like it's in for some reason in show jumping often a commentator will say someone will trot into the ring and the commentator will say oh like this person it has been doing well really well they're riding with a lot of confidence like mm. You can just tell in the way that they're riding, they're riding with confidence. You don't hear as much with the commentators and eventing, I don't know. But I think it's so interesting because like you can then see it. Like if you if they say that about a certain person, they pick up the canter and make a circle and you can just see it. Like mm -hmm. they think the horse is gonna jump clear. Like they believe in it. And they and whether they're riding with confidence because they have had a good trend of shows or whatever, or I don't know, or maybe it's with that particular horse, but it's like, and, and maybe if you haven't had a lot of good results, like you kind of have to fake it a little too. Like, I think that this can happen. Um, and you think that can turn around. So no, it's, I mean, horses, they, they read more into us than we know, I think. Yeah. So sometimes you got to lie. Uh -huh. <laughs> sometimes you just got to lie. That's really good. That's really good. Um, do you have a favorite training or competition mantra you reference regularly? Yeah, so I have one that Marilyn has said to me several times, which is it might get worse before it gets better. And this can be like on a micro level, like in a training session, if you're trying to improve a shoulder in, like you sometimes have to let something fall apart before you can like really improve it. But it can also be on a macro level, like something might get worse because you're really working at it, whether it's something like over the course of a season or, or even like horses career before it can get better and to not be discouraged by that. And I think in any industry, in any sport, certainly, but even in any industry, like even from a business point of view, you have to be willing to take risks to like get to the next level and it might get worse. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to get better. And it might, if it's really getting worse and worse and worse, then you're probably going in the wrong direction. But if it's just getting a bit worse and then you're kind of almost there, then it's kind of like worth like pursuing that. And you have to be flexible too and kind of think about what path to pursue. But you can't expect it to be linear at all, especially with horses. Yeah. And that's really interesting that you say that too, because it's almost feels like a bit of a relief if you just remember that. And then that actually puts you in a better state of mind to accurately assess what's happening. Then you'll yeah. be able to see, is it going backwards, but I see the way out or is it going backwards and I need to adjust and make a couple of things, but I'm going to only see that if it gets a little undone. Yeah. But I'm okay. Does yeah. That make sense? Like yeah. You're gonna... and, the, and the more like experiences you have like that, where you do get to the other side, the more confident that you are that like, it's okay. And the more like, I mean, the less emotional you are about it too. You're like, oh my God, what's happening? Everything's whatever. You're kind of like, no, 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 it'll be fine. Like I'm trusting the process a bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, you can kind of, there's so many parallels from, because I know you teach a lot too. So like there are things that you probably do that you just have that immediate like oh I know this is going to be fine because I've done it 10 times before even if there's a little struggle whereas the person you're teaching might be like no this isn't fine this is not fine nothing is fine <laughs> and you're like, it's, it's going to be okay um, there are certain things when you're upping your game or trying to learn something new where you're kind of going uh is it and and that's like for me when that happens I have kind of 
probably three people I call to check on me. Like, am I, yeah. am I okay here? Like, cause it feels weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, but it's good to have that kind of community around as well, whether it's your dressage person, your vet, your PT, whatever, to just check on you if you get that kind of questioning. Yeah. You know, somebody says stick it out or adjust this or or do a little bit of whatever. Yeah, to make sure. Is there a piece of advice someone gave you along the way that you still reference today? One thing that Karen O'Connor has said to me a few times, and I think Packy said to me, quoting her, and it's probably quoting someone else is after like having a bad result or falling off or whatever is you've probably heard it before the experience is what you get right after you needed it which is just such an annoying thing for someone to, to, like if you come back to the barn and you're like pants are all muddy and you're just like half concussed and holding onto the horse and they're like well experience you got the experience now right good on you <laughs> but I think it's I think it's important and I think what's interesting is I think some people are not good at taking lessons away from things that don't go well because they're so upset about what didn't go well. And like, yeah, you totally can be upset. And like, especially if it's a long drive home, think a lot about how depressing it is that you didn't do what you should have done or whatever. But then like, you have to be analytical about it. Like, why didn't it happen? Like, it's not, I, I don't subscribe at all to the like, it wasn't their day. I mean, May, there are things that can happen, like a horse can be sick or whatever. Yes, that's totally true. But like, for the most part, if you are training your horse properly and prepared for the level, whether it's a training level or a four star, like, I don't get the, it wasn't your day thing. Like you or the horse made a mistake that made it so it couldn't happen. Or maybe you weren't prepared for the level at all. But like, to kind of just say like, oh, well, it just didn't really go our way this time. We'll just like enter another show and see if it comes off. Like that to me is a really bad way of looking at it. Because then you're just like leaving it up to like whomever <laughs> and you don't have control over the situation. So I'm very analytical about my mistakes and to the point where maybe it's a little bit crazy. But if experience is what you get right after you needed it, then what did you need? What was it that you needed? Did you need a better eye? Did you need better balance? Did you need to practice right-handed corners more like I did in whatever that year was that I was just crashing through everything? Like you needed something. And if you had had it, it would have gone your way. I mean, you would have gotten it done. And eventing is like crazy because it's such split second decisions that you have to make, right? Like you can be three inches too close to a corner and your horse can not believe you and not jump it. Or you can be a little bit too fast into a combination and have a pin. Or you can, whatever, like, it's so minuscule, the things. But, like, there is a reason. I believe there's a reason for every mistake. And so figure out what it was and then train so that it doesn't happen again. And it might still happen. I mean, there are things that just happen and you can't really explain it. But for the most part, you can explain it. And so I think that saying, while very frustrating in the moment, is a good way of kind of framing your analysis of how something has happened. And it also, I think, helps you to be proactive. I think one of the best skills I learned from Marilyn was how to walk a course and how to have a very, very specific plan. I mean, even to the point where you have like a plan A, B, C, D for basically every combination that is on the course. And so one of the kind of pieces of advice that 
she's given me a lot is if you're worried about a particular jump or you think that's it's something that your horse is going to struggle with, you want to land from that fence thinking to yourself, I did more than I needed to, like to get that done. And that doesn't mean like you were a crazy person and like kicked your horse like hell going into the jump. Like it, it's more nuanced than that. It's like I did more than I needed to in like making sure the horse was like very straight or like making sure I did the plan exactly the way I wanted. And like, yeah, we would have gotten it done if I'd done a bit less, but you want to land from the jump thinking I did more than I needed to, because that makes it a hundred percent, not a hundred, you can never get a hundred percent, but it makes it 95% likely that you're going to do it well and properly. And so that's all, I mean, those things kind of tied together because it's the, it's the, it's kind of like advanced hindsight, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, in hindsight, I would have done X. You need like an advanced, yeah. uh, advanced, right? Like in like in the future, I will think this. So like, let's backtrack from that. And like, and and you have to think of it too, like with your particular horse, like how are they going to look at this jump? They don't walk the horse. So as if they're at minute eight and they're a bit tired and it's this type of jump and you know the types of things that they think about or they do at this particular jump like so how are you gonna kind of in advance figure out what that is and and you it's a bit of a prediction game and you don't always know and and as you bring them up the levels too you learn about them and things like that but you have you have to I think or it at least gives me some confidence to be very analytical about what could happen to try to prevent that well it also seems like it gives you a a really much more clear map if it doesn't work because you know you've thought about exactly what you were going to do and a you either did that and you yeah. missed something yeah or you weren't able to execute it yeah. for whatever reason and you need to go back and do that it's I had this um and it really stands out to me a couple of years ago I had a horse that was worried uh just if she would jump liver pools but she was really worried about it yeah and, um and I uh, was riding with Scott Keach or still am, but at the time he, he just said, this is where show jumpers are, eventers are brave and show jumpers are tough. He's like, you don't canter down and just get to the other side. Don't miss, <laughs> like, get that horse to a good distance, right. ride your spur, like your spur on, but to a good distance. If you just try, you're going to keep scaring me. Cause I kind of came yeah. down. Like, at it. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, okay, the problem is you. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. You need to ride better. (laughs) But I was like, I don't get it. I'm on the other side. Yeah. (laughs) There was a lot of learning there, but it was, it really made me think, you know, it's like the same when people are are worried about uh, trucaners or ditch walls Mm -hmm. and they're, and they're like, well, my horse is ditchy. It's like, okay, well there you have to be really tough. Like you have to be really good. You have to be be really accurate be very accurate yeah yeah don't and I'm gonna I probably shouldn't say this online I don't understand some of the quotes floating around lately that you shouldn't see a distance like Mm -hmm. I don't understand that and uh even if you're if you just know what distance you're not seeing (laughs) (laughs) you know it's not saying that like we see every distance but we know what's going on I mean it gives you some you you don't close your eyes walk into a new set of stairs right exactly Um, yeah. But anyway, it it does 
feel like there's that if you can get comfortable in that space that's a little bit uncomfortable because there is a little bit of unknown instead of kind of having the mindset of like well hopefully it will be my day right yeah down down (laughs) doesn't doesn't usually work yeah 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 it's kind of an adventure thing to just kind of like get through the flags you know what I mean and I think Packy impressed on me. I mean, he start he he did like a lot of hunters, and and his view was like you, your cross country round should be beautiful to watch. Like it should be beautiful. We shouldn't be like clutching the person next to us and like holding our breath when you like barely make it through. Like sure that can happen, and like gutsy riding is totally like important. But he was like, it should be beautiful to watch. Like it should look good. You should be stylish. You should place the horse well. Like it shouldn't be scary to watch. And I think, and at the time I remember thinking like I was probably like 15 or 16 when he like, he would give me all of these lectures about all these types of things. And I was kind of like, yeah, but like nobody really. And then I remember watching like Bear Hill or something and thinking, I mean, I probably was watching you and thinking, wow, like people actually do do it really beautifully. You know what I mean? Like it's possible to make it look good and make it look easy. And also it's good for the picture of the sport too to have it I mean it's not going to be perfect every time but like we shouldn't be like hanging legs and like running by stuff and barely making it through it should look like nice and good for the horses in my view so anyway I think it's I think it it is important to have the mindset of like okay I've got to grip my teeth and get it done especially in those moments but that shouldn't be the approach like all the time because also the horses begin to distrust you. Yeah, as they should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you teach us that lesson, right? Like it comes up again and again. And I, I certainly find I would definitely waffle back and forth in my own riding. If I don't, if I have to get a little bit like, or if I find like I'm more regularly riding kind of a bit gritty or a bit whatever. Yeah. This happened to me this season with a horse that's, that's more jumping bread and jumps great. But as he was moving up the levels, I was just having to ride more and more and more and more. And ultimately I took him to try on and he just started jumping so big. I mean, he's brave and confident. Well, he's not confident, obviously, but he was just jumping higher and higher and higher. And I pulled him up and said, we got to clean this up because why? And the wild thing was, is that he did a whole season and won a bunch of stuff. And then I'm like, well, why is he so strong? Why is he jumping so big? And I'd like trotted him up to a fence on cross country. He was terrified of it. And it's mm-hmm. because he came from the jumping world. He was a jumping horse. Yeah. I didn't spend the time with him on cross country that I should have. I'm like, oh shit, he's scared of cross country jumps. Right, like, right. Yeah. You could, you know, you could can him around nicely around the show jumps. But when I went out on cross country, like I just kind of handled him a little bit from the get-go because he was yeah. a big jumping horse. And then yeah. I realized, oh my God, I have to just totally back up. Yeah, his body kept me real because he was going to make some mega mistake, but it's kind of figuring out like, why, why can't we ride in a way, like you said, that's beautiful to watch? Like, Mm -hmm. is is the horse talented enough? Like, right. Question. Skill set. That's a real question. Mm -hmm. Like, is there some fear, too much fear involved? Like there's going to be a level of pressure, but it shouldn't turn into a, a thoughtless. Like we've seen horses like that, that look good, slow on one horse show. And then they go to a, to a four-star or five-star and they're out of their heads, like yeah. not control because they're not present. Like what's going on there? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. All of these real questions that thank God the horses at some point, if you're paying attention, keep you real. And it's funny because even like you saying that 
about your horse running past right-handed corners for a year. It's like, nobody remembers that. Like nobody knows that. And it's, an, but it's so good to hear. Yeah. Like, that, that yeah. like there was some gap there that had to be filled and the time mm-hmm. that you filling it made you better and stronger. So it's like, it's not like these mistakes or things you need to skirt or go around. Like the only way to, is like to go mm-hmm. through, like you have you to, have go to meet them head on. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that I have learned and I'm continuing to learn is like, it's so important to be willing to go up and down the levels with them. Like I've had a couple of horses that are really careful and their best three day events were when they ran like two levels below in a horse trial, like the event before, or even the two events before, because they just felt like superwoman when they got there. And it's so hard to do it though. Cause you're like, this is dumb. Like, why am I going to like, you know, the thing down the street and just like cantering around in this like kind of not a very nice course. And the horses are, they just take a breath and it's just, and then they're so much better when you get there. So there, there are lots of ways to do it, but sometimes you're just like, okay, this is a three-star horse. So we're going to do three stars. And it's like, no, you can go and do like a modified if you need to, like just train them a little, make it, they shouldn't go out of the start box every time feeling like their hair's on fire and they have to make the time and win. Like sometimes it should be a little bit happier for them. So anyway, totally, totally agree. Okay. What do you do when you are seeking inspiration? I watch a lot of videos. I, I think it's worthwhile to have like the horse and country and those sort of subscriptions and stuff, just because there's actually so much available to watch. I watch a lot of show jumping and my my poor partner, I make her wake up for all of the five stars, particularly cross-country day, but sometimes all of the phases. So we're up at like 4 a.m. watching Burley and Badminton. And Adelaide usually is at a more reasonable time. But anyway, so we do a lot of watching five stars. And yeah, just kind of being inspired by what is out there and what you can do and taking notes on how the how the courses ride and what works and what doesn't. And I think it's really fun to watch live sport. Like I watch a lot of recorded like old videos and stuff too, but there's something so exciting about what, like waking up early in the morning and watching a five stars, like, wow, like how's this going to go? When the first horse goes out, you're like, okay, buckle up. Yeah. Gets the blood going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm lucky that she doesn't want to kill me when I make her do that. <laughs> we all have compromises we have to make <laughs> that's not a bad one <laughs> there are many worse ones yeah uh, all right and our last question have you had an experience or adversity separate from horses in your life that you feel has influenced you as a horsewoman probably losing my coach losing Packy. uh it happened when i i had worked for him for a long time and and rode with him and then I started working with Marilyn Moore, who was actually, they they were like second cousins or something. They were related and they were very close. And so he was very happy that I had the opportunity to work there and um, have those horses to learn from and stuff. So I hadn't really, like probably in the two years before that, I hadn't really had that many lessons with him or just worked with him that much or as much as I had before that but he had been such a resource for me. And, and he, I mean, he would just show up at horse shows, like kind of unannounced sometimes and just be kind of standing there. And it would be so, well, it would be kind of terrifying because you knew he was going to tell you about how you missed to this or this didn't look great. 
but it would also be so comforting that he was, I mean, he cared so much about the horses and about the people that he coached and was, I mean, he was a, he was kind of a complicated guy, but he was just really committed and passionate. And he actually was a lawyer too. Some people don't, don't know that he went to Maryland school of law and practiced for a few years in New York, I think. And then kind of went back into horses and then practiced a little bit here anyway. So he kind of was in both worlds a little bit. It certainly was a bit of a influence on me in terms of, I mean, I went to Duke because he told me to apply there. And then I went to law school because I thought he was cool. <laughs> he was a lawyer. Um, so he had a huge impact on me. And so, yeah, losing him was, was really tough just from a, I mean, for obvious reasons, but also just from a mentorship point of view. And sometimes I think about whether I would have made different choices or he would have, he was really good at just telling you if you were doing kind of the right thing or you were pursuing the right path or, I mean, he was so good at picking out horses. He picked Bendigo wildly. It was so untrained. He picked Joker's win, who also went four star, it was my brother's like pony club horse. And then I took him and he told me to buy Bronte Beach. Like, there's, I'm like, there are horses out there that Packy would have helped me find, and and I won't, I won't know, but I just, I just think a lot about what he would say and the advice he would give and stuff like that. So yeah, it's tough, but then I'm also just incredibly grateful that I, I had to, I had his mentorship and and the time I had with him and just so many lessons, but. He was really, yeah, he was a force to be reckoned with. I mean, if he was at the horse show, you heard him for sure. And he would. I saw him in a pink shirt. <laughs> like I, I have yeah. sightings all the time. Like I'll see like a cool shirt where I was like, it's packed. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> like, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> and he would take command of the warm-up area. That's for sure. But, yeah. but he, he loved the horses. It was, it was really amazing. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I miss him a lot, but I certainly feel so so privileged that he I mean he kind of like molded me in a lot of ways both in horses and and outside and yeah we a lot of people miss him yeah it's a unique thing I I think and it's a hard thing to put into words what it's like to have a a, like a true mentor in the sport and somebody that's not just right now again and I get it but they're, it's like lesson machines, like in and out, in and out. And that's mm-hmm. like just missing out on so much, like, especially when you're developing in the sport and trying to figure out your life, like it's, yeah. you need somebody that has the technical ability to tell you what you need to do technically, but having that person that's going to tell you the truth, which Packy is going to tell you the truth. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was coming from a place of uh, a good place, like a, a place yeah. of love for you and of love for the horses. And, and that's a unique trait to find one mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. I can I can um understand your gratitude and that that gap in missing in missing that I was having this conversation with a young rider the other day who was kind of switching around some stuff and it and she just was so seeking that relationship somebody to guide her in all of it because it's so much I yeah mean, all of it life yeah I mean I think I'm still looking for that to be honest like I think there's still a really big gap I Marilyn is a huge mentor for me she she now lives in Florida but like we call frequently we review videos together she like helps me develop my competition schedule and everything and and it's like knows my horses and all the rest of it but he was like 
he was so like judgmental, which was good. You know what I mean? Like he would totally like tell you if you're wrong about something. And like, in some ways it's, it's, it's not even that like there were things that he told me to do. I just kind of like was doing things because I knew I would, I would do them because I kind of thought that he, he thought that those were a good idea and that sort of shaped me, you know what I mean? And so I don't know, it's, um, but it's hard. And it's also just, it's hard to develop your own like system. You learn other systems from other people and you can kind of take something, leave some things. And then, I mean, eventually you kind of have to have your own way. Um, and it can't, it's not going to be exactly the same as Packy or Marilyn or whoever, but it has to be yours and you have to be confident in it because if you're not, you know, you won't have that self-belief. So, yeah. Yeah. Circle to that self-belief. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and there's still strands of him that totally come through. Like the fact that I have, I still have Ben obviously, but I have these other horses that he like helped me find or, or he didn't really help me find, but he like approved of them. He would not let me buy a horse that he didn't approve of. He was very, I did that once and it, he was very unhappy. <laughs> um, but the fact that he, I feel, I feel his influence still, you know what I mean? Which is, which is really nice. So anyway, yeah, I think that a personality, is, an energy like that doesn't <laughs> sway. It leaves itself around. <laughs> exactly. So, so then, um, what does your, so you're going to get a real job. Is that the deal? <laughs> I know that's the upshot of all of this. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there are lots of things you can do with a law degree, but one common path or one way of doing it is to clerk for a judge after law school. And so I'm going to do that for two years at what's called the court of federal claims in DC, just, uh, about half a block from the White House. So we have a nice view of the White House out, out the judge's chambers. And I'll be drafting opinions, um, attending oral arguments, uh, working, yeah, full time. So I'll, I'll have to sort out the probably riding in the dark a lot. But I, it, it was nice I when I was negotiating for the job and, and got the offer and things like that. I sort of told the judge, I was like, I, you could pick someone who's just doing this full time. Like I have this whole other thing and, you know, I'm kind of nervous about, you know, whether I'll have time to do it. And do you mind, you think you can be somewhat flexible and, you know, I'm going to have to take some days fairly regularly to travel to events and things like that. And, and I knew that she valued in-person work. So it wasn't like I could just do everything remotely. And I was scared of what she would say. And I was scared, like she was just going to rescind the offer. And she said, look, like, I'm, I worked at the justice department. I started my legal career. I had three little kids. Like, I know you're not an all or nothing. Like you can't, I know that people have other stuff and you'll be fine. And like, we'll work, we'll work at it. And you tell me, you know, in advance what you need and we'll figure out the schedule. And like, obviously it's a job. So it's not like I can just leave at any moment, but as long as, you know, I communicate and, and stuff with her, like I was, I was really encouraged by her response. And she was like, yeah, I know. Like we all have a lot of stuff going on. And um, I was also juggling and now she's a, obviously a, a judge, very successful. So, so yeah, I'm excited about starting that, but also scared. It's been a lot of school and now I have to actually work, but it's a cool thing to feel like I'm actually starting to do something now that's using my education. So 
looking forward to that. And then that's two years and then I'll figure out from there kind of where to go. But I think we'll be probably in this area. My partner's a, a veterinary surgeon. And so if you have any dogs with uh, things stuck in their intestines, let us know. But yeah, we'll probably be in this area and hopefully be continuing to do the horses. But for sure, there's a bit of balance to all of it. Yes, I'd say that. Two two heavyweights on the ends of the I see everything in seesaws these days. But well that sounds incredible. This has been such a fun morning. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And yeah, this took a lot of fun, fun roads. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I really enjoyed it. And we both stayed a little warmer than we would have been outside. So it was win-win. It was a win-win. Awesome. Well, good luck with everything and um yeah, stay warm up there. Thank you so much. See you around. Bye. Before you go, I just want to let you know more about Ride IQ. At its core, Ride IQ gives everyone access to instruction from the best equestrian coaches in the world. It might sound impossible, but with Ride IQ, you get access to the private mobile app that has hundreds of on-demand, listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by top riders and coaches in eventing, hunter jumpers, and dressage. Here's how it works. You look through the app and choose a lesson based on your horse or a skill you're working on. There are lessons for green off-the-track thoroughbreds and nervous horses and horses that are behind the leg, as well as lessons that teach every stage of skills like shoulder in or trot lengthenings. Then you tack up and press play and you have a top coach like Doug Payne or Leslie Law or Gina Smith in your ear guiding you every step of the way. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family and leave a review on your podcast app. The best way to support the podcast is to become a Ride IQ member at ride-iq.com. And when you do, we hope you're excited to see that InStride is just one of multiple podcast shows on the app, including hack chats, conversations with coaches, and more. 